Well, I remember hearing the frustration of a missionary friend in Mongolia um, living in a rural town. He said the well-meaning city churches keep sending out these mission trips from the city and the city churches would say, we've got a branch church in this or that town. But I just wish they'd send people to make disciples. The Bible doesn't tell us to plant churches. It says, Jesus says, make disciples. I'd love them to come out and do some of that long, slow, hard work of helping people to be more like Jesus, particularly as those little country churches were having severe internal problems. Another friend in Australia shared with me that his pastor was constantly talking about discipleship when he came to the church. The pastor would urge people, we're here to be and to make disciples. We want to start taking discipleship seriously. And my friend said, what he's saying must be important because he keeps saying it. But I'm not sure what our pastor actually wants when he's telling us to be disciples. What does he want us to do or stop doing? What is discipleship exactly? It's a word we throw around a lot, isn't it, in churches? I've spoken about discipleship a lot too since I've arrived at DPC, and it is central for churches and individual Christians to grasp how we view ourselves, how we view this church community, our kids' church and youth ministry goals. Our home groups too, for example, might be given a a sharper edge if we consider them as well as home groups, they're discipleship groups. It might help us as well if we're feeling a bit despondent in life or busy without a purpose or sensing there's more to life than what we're doing or if we're concerned about the gap between Sydney cultural Christianity and what we read in the Bible. Into this, God says, listen to him. And Jesus says, follow me. Last week we saw Moses and Elijah walking on earth. Well, you too, DPC, are heaven's people, those for whom glory belongs, walking here on earth for now. You belong to a higher order. And that will make an enormous difference to how you see yourselves and how you live your lives. It's the mindset of King Jesus' disciples. So to avoid being one of those pastors who doesn't describe what discipleship is, this passage is going to help me this morning. What what do disciples look like? What do disciples look like? What is Jesus wanting his followers to do? If we as a church listen well to Jesus, as God instructs us back in chapter 9, what will that look like? Well, as we might expect, Jesus' teaching again here is arresting and it's kind and it's disturbing And it's liberating all at once. Three main points emerge from the Bible reading, and I'll focus mostly on the first two. It was a longish reading. Being disciples of Jesus means we receive and we relinquish and we serve. There's a take-home, if that's all all you catch. We receive, we relinquish, we we serve. We receive the kingdom like children. We relinquish other things because we so value the Lord Jesus himself, our King. And we serve as those inspired by Jesus. In essence, by way of conclusion, and I won't really look at Bartimaeus, but we're a Bartimaeus community. Janet helpfully shared what that looks like a little. So look with me first at verse uh, 13 of Mark chapter 10, as we see this receiving the kingdom like children. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, and laying his hands on them. There's nothing particularly virtuous about children that Jesus is pointing to here. Uh, You don't need to go down to the local public school and try to learn some tips on how to be a virtuous person or learn some new behaviors. Receiving the kingdom like a child is not a new work or a new skill that we have to develop to get into the kingdom. No, I think Jesus' point is that kids simply come. They simply come to Jesus for what he freely offers. To receive Christ's kingdom like a child is is to allow oneself to be given it. That's the point. To receive Christ's kingdom like a child is to allow oneself to be given it. You invite a child over for lunch and they probably won't say, are you sure? What would you like me to bring? How can I contribute? They'll just say, thanks. And they'll arrive expectantly. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a nice alternative way to live? It's To receive Christ's kingdom like a child is to allow oneself to be given it. How can a human enter a spiritual realm with Christ? How can we cross the barrier from this world to the next? Of course that's impossible. Only by allowing ourselves to be given it by the one who can give it. The child's way is trustingly presumptuous. The independent adult's way is utterly hopeless. A simple, I receive you, Lord Jesus, is all it takes. That's the great news. What a relief. We can drop the merit list, drop the KPIs. We need not worry about our relative credentials compared to other people, our intelligence or our capacity, as though the king and his kingdom needed us to be a certain way. He's the one we focus on. Indeed, we can just enjoy knowing that we're freely welcomed and embraced by Christ. And let's hope by his people as well as we come into the church community. Jesus could have been much less intimate than he is there in verse 16. I enjoy that. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. May coming to DPC be child's play. Our message isn't change your life and try to fit in at this church. No, it's simply come to Jesus and he will change your life. It's a message for the nine-year-olds in the hall and it's a message for the 90-year-olds and everyone in between. And notice too, there were adults, verse 13, bringing these kids to Jesus, as many of you do here as faithful parents at DPC. Kids need directing toward what is good. And so it's right to say, eat your breakfast and read your Bible and kids, have you brushed your teeth? Isn't it such a blessing we have such a small army, or this this small army of volunteers who are out there now teaching our kids, presenting kids to Jesus and presenting Jesus to the kids? First then, receive. Disciples are those who receive and continue receiving the kingdom like children. And so as disciples, we can grow to enjoy the givenness of life. We notice gifts more than we are driven to gain all the time. We've, been made, uh, we've made it much more than we are trying to make it. There's a sense of arrival for the Christian. 
Next, in verses 17 to 31, Jesus illustrates this vividly through an example of an adult's unsuccessful approach to Jesus. This man tries coming to Jesus on his own merit. So Jesus teaches a second mark of his disciples here. Receiving Jesus allows us to relinquish, to let go of what otherwise grips us. Verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems earnest. Uh, The man's running up and he's kneeling down. But it's not a child's question really, is it? I imagine a child might ask, can I be with you, Jesus? Can I please come into your kingdom? But instead, verse 17, the rich man asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm up for it. Just tell me what I need to do. Without Jesus denying his own goodness, he hints at the problem of sin, including this man's sin, with his follow-up question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's hinting at the problem. Jesus then points to the law, which further humbles the humble when we read the law. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, teach all these I've kept from my youth. I can't say with the help of the Spirit that I've kept those in my youth. But many Jews did at this time think that obeying the Ten Commandments was possible. Notice Jesus' response to this man with misguided self-confidence in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that nice? Whatever Jesus is going to say now, it's coming out of love. He's not defensive. He's not threatened. Jesus doesn't need his money. But he does know that mere money, paltry wealth, has its grip on this man's eternal soul. Jesus will apply the necessary scalpel of the first commandment here. You shall have no other gods before me. And see how that goes in this man's life. But rather than just giving the commandment, he gives it in a way that the man's going to feel it. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. All you need to do is to let go of the stuff God's given you and come, let's go, follow me. Your money or me, it's a very simple choice. Just let go of your money, start afresh with God, Let's get to know each other. Join my band of disciples. We don't have much materially, but I assure you God will forever fill your heart. But the gold chains of Satan pull him the other way. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This Jew thought he was a faithful Jew moments ago. He's now sad because when put to the test, his riches are indeed a heavy idol, a choking vine like the parable in Mark 4. They are diminishing his life and his kingdom potential. His wealth seems good, too good, too pleasing to let it go. And even with the Lord of life standing right there in front of him, saying, come on, unless he snaps out of it, This cost, the cost of this decision is eternal loss. 
it's a chilling encounter for Christians like you and me if we earnestly consider it, as we should. Why do you think we'd decide any differently? We use money, we need assets, or at least a roof over our heads, which means we need an income and probably savings to cover lean periods that we could face. On a world scale, we're all wealthy here at DPC. We've got possessions in quality and in quantity. What makes us so certain that we're any different from this man? And what would a contemporary test look like that might help us to test our own hearts? Because we are helped if we, we find these heavy idols. If it somehow became unmistakably clear to you and the church that God was saying, me or your stuff, make the choice, what would you do? Let's say God somehow called you to sell all your assets, empty your bank and super accounts, leave your job, cut off your pension, and be sent by DPC to Alice Springs to be part of a new kingdom initiative. How would you respond? It's food for thought, isn't it? Perhaps we should start an initiative in Alice Springs and see what happens. Now, it's all hypothetical, of course. But there's only one good answer as far as I can see it. And it seems healthy to be genuinely open to such a possibility and to live with that openness. Those who receive the kingdom like a child realize who freely saved us. Jesus is the one with no rival worth entertaining. Jesus' people trust God with tomorrow. Jesus' disciples are ready to relinquish plans and preferences and gifts because we have the giver himself. Cut it off, cut it off, pluck it out, were the the phrases we heard last week. Things that cause us to sin, get rid of them. And this week, Jesus says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He tests us with his words to another that day. Sell it, give it away, don't buy that. If it's leading us to compromise with him. Those who rely on wealth will find that that's all they've got to rely on. Better to be responsive now to Jesus the teacher than to be exposed on that terrible day by Jesus the judge, who this very day is warning each of us. And so I ask you as I ask myself, do you more naturally put wealth in the category of, oh, wealth schmelf, or my precious wealth? Jesus stands before us and says, do you now see me for who I am? We've had chapters of revelation of who Jesus is, God himself. Do you see that I am your enough? That as my disciples, I'm calling you to rely on the reliable one. What a revolutionary, freeing way to approach 2022 and the future. What will that mean for you? I don't know what that will mean for you. I've got no idea. But I'd love to find out in six or 12 months as you genuinely listen to Jesus with this and as you seek really hard to avoid quenching the spirit who is your ever-present good teacher as you make decisions in life. 
Verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We need to be really clear about this. This sad man just loved his stuff too much. He had a frightening handicap in the form of wealth. And so he was running a race that wasn't Christ's. Can can the same be said for you? Would it be helpful to teach your wealth a regular lesson by letting much of it go? And I know many of you already are very generous. Uh, The board game called the Game of Life. Well, it gives victory to the person who ends up at the end of the game with the most money, naturally. That's what life's all about, right? Well, the real game of life is your opportunity to show God you love him. The purpose of life is to show God you love him. Which game are you playing? And so some warning signs that we're playing the wrong game might be to sense a sense of self a sense of pity for those who are making big sacrifices. Sometimes at Bible college students would tell me they'd just sold the family home in order to come to Bible college at 30 years old. They just managed to buy a house or they're selling it to come to college. And I needed to check myself. Don't pity them, David. That's a perfectly reasonable thing for a disciple to do. As our kids consider a vocation, it seems natural to point them towards a respectable degree and a career. Send missionaries, Lord, but could you please send someone else's kids? And yet, do we not trust Jesus who says there in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time child in question receiving a hundred times what they've given up in God's economy. And notice the oars of verse 29 are replaced by the ands of verse 30. House, we might leave house or brothers or sisters given up, become houses and brothers and sisters received. There's that pleasing word again, received, not earned or accumulated, but just gifted along the way for God's people. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He doesn't hide that. And in the age to come, eternal life. Heaven's people walking on earth, valuing Jesus more than stuff. Can you imagine Moses or Elijah from chapter 9 forsaking their glorious, amazing home with God in order to stay on earth? Sorry, Jesus. I'm saying here, I've got some serious indulging to do. I want to store up some of that stuff instead of being back with God. It would be unthinkable of someone of the age to come. And yet, friends, that's who we are. We receive, we relinquish, and thirdly, we serve as those inspired by Jesus. And they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, that fateful city. They know what's going to come. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who were following were afraid. Jesus has told them what's coming. Uh, The opposition tends to come from Jerusalem when it also meets them in other places. But notice how resolutely Jesus is walking ahead of them. They sense what Jerusalem means, but they notice his resolve, his fortitude, his servant-hearted love that takes him there. And so again, as we saw last week, we see the disciples squabbling 
about their positions in the kingdom in light of that, verses 35 to 37, James and John there, provoking Jesus to, and all of us at the same time, provoking Jesus to teach all of us about a disciple's humility, verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but I can find it tempting to reduce my exposure to the needs of others. Perhaps that's a natural instinct. Perhaps it's necessary at different times. Don't ask them how they're going. Don't ask if you can support them or their ministry in any way. Don't show up too often. Try to avoid commitments. There are countless reasons to avoid serving others that won't be questioned in polite community. And so we need to do a regular health check on ourselves, perhaps with the help of an honest friend. You might think of a few other people here at DPC that you observe serving Christ in ways you really appreciate. What is it about them that makes them servants you really appreciate? How does their example inspire you in different ways? Our youth ministry this year has been really helped by some gap year students. So Mandy was running things solo with some help of parents, and Lily and Lockie came along and have made a great difference. It would be great to have some long-term leaders in the mix as we seek to grow the ministry in 2022. Uh, We need more servants available on those tired Friday nights when the last thing you want to do is be in a loud hall. The Women's Hub Bible study on Tuesday morning shared with me they have a need for someone to watch some young infants so that their mums can join the Bible study. We need a servant or two to be willing to offer their Tuesday mornings. I'm aware of a meal program that uh, someone from 9am and the Dream Team thought of doing so that our community can be reached more with the church and, and the love of the church. That will need some people making meals. Some of you may have family situations that are very trying, in which you need to keep showing love and grace just where you live and be a servant inspired by Jesus there. Some of you, I I know, have physical challenges, and uh, particularly in our our older congregation at 9am, where the main ministry they can have at the moment is to pray. And so pray they do. That's their way of service. Whatever we do or don't do, let's be inspired by this example of Jesus, our sin-bearer who loved us with his actions and truth-telling, with his ransomed life, verse 45. He gave his life as a ransom for many, that silent sheep before the slaughter, wounded and pierced for our sake, because only he could do what we needed him to do. The glorious king who says, follow me, is the inspiring servant of all servants. One of those kind youth leaders when I was young taught me a song. And um, over the years, I found myself singing this song over and over. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my life always be, make me a servant. We relinquish 
Uh, we receive, we relinquish, we serve. In essence, we're a Bartimaeus community. As one who used to be a teacher, I'll leave as homework um, for you to read the last verses of Mark, verses 46 to 52. His story captures all that has come before it. But I'll reflect some of the things we can learn from Bartimaeus as I close in prayer together. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you that you meet us with yourself. You know us intimately. You know our better moments. But you also know that the grip that Satan has on us, uh, the temptations he would seek to put before us. You know the power of the flesh as well, and we just struggle to do what's right and good and holy. But we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus, that you, Lord Jesus, would give your life for us, and that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us to a better way of following the way of Christ. We thank you that Jesus came so that we know what righteousness looks like. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit's coming that we have the power to live his way. We thank you for the example of humble Bartimaeus who embodies these lessons we've been thinking about. He knows who Jesus is. He knows his need for Jesus. He knows that he owes his sight to Jesus. And he's one very ready to relinquish all he has to follow Jesus. Amen.